This is Talking Dirty, Get Gardening's podcast for plant lovers. The video version is available on our Get Gardening YouTube channel, so you can head over there if you want to see our ugly mugs, and there are pictures of the plants there as well. There are full plant lists on our Twitter and Instagram at Get Gardening Now, so go check those out. But without further ado, let's start Talking Dirty. Hello and welcome to a special and quite different edition of Talking Dirty. This is less of our usual plant-filled podcast and more about a very special announcement that East Ruston or Vicarage has been working on for a little while. We'll introduce our guests in just a moment. But Alan, I, I should hand over to you really, because it's you and Graham who have spent a long time working on this top secret news, which we can now allow all of our Talking Dirty viewers and listeners in on. Yeah, well, thank you very much for that. And uh, hello, everybody. I think that, um, uh, well, it's East Ruston Old Vicarage, 50th uh, or Golden Jubilee, 50 years since Graham and I bought the house. Um, and I was looking back a few days ago at some of the early, early pictures when we had, we bought it with about two and, two and a bit acres or something. And I was just looking at, you know, our early attempts at making a garden when we were only here at weekends and stuff like that and everything. It suddenly amazed me that 50 years has gone. And I've been, well, we both have really been asked for several years <laughs> as time advances. Um, you know, the typical response is something like this. You know, the question comes in, have you um, have you possibly thought of what might um, happen to the garden when, when you know, when, when you when... peg it? <laughs> so, I say, so I say, when we die. <laughs> oh, well, we didn't like to say that, but that's what you meant. Why did you say it? Um, and so we, yes, we had been thinking about it, and we um, we approached um, the gardening charity perennial, in actual fact, and I'm terribly, terribly pleased, not to say relieved as well, to say that they have very kindly accepted our offer of East Ruston Old Vicarage and its garden um, into their fold after we die, <laughs> <laughs> which is a long way off. We're, we're all well, I hope to so, add. but um, <laughs> I mean. I don't wish to be inconvenient to perennial, but I do hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so this is it's a kind of bequeathment, really. You are yes. ensuring the future of the garden so that unlike so many great gardens, it doesn't sort of fade out um, to nothing in the future. Because it's, it's very hard to ensure what happens to it after you've gone without some I, kind I, of big organisation. It is, because I, when I said relief a little while ago, it's something of a relief because... Um, it's only relatively in the probably last five or six years that um, maybe we have realised just how important our garden is, if you know know what I mean, because it was our garden and it still is our garden. Um, and, you know, when you open your garden to visitors, you suddenly realise there is another dimension to it and it, it's, it becomes beloved by lots of other people. It probably becomes hated by lots of other people. <laughs> I don't mind about that like because that. that's as it should be. We shouldn't all like the same things. Um, but when that suddenly occurs to you and you, you think, well, perhaps I should have more responsibility in what happens to it. And I think that was basically the reason for uh, getting in touch with Perennial. 
So in order to fully talk about what this means for the future of East Ruston, we thought we would invite along two of our friends from Perennial. One of them is Chairman of Trustees, Paul Rochford, who is a fifth generation nurseryman. What an amazing thing to be able to say of Joseph Rochford. Larks go through his, his, <laughs> through his blood, I think. <laughs> exactly, yeah. If you cut yourself in the garden, do your blood run green or something like that, Paul? Yeah. <laughs> Can I ask if you have any middle names to share? Well, I, uh, my middle name is Paul. My first name is John. Um, and I think the initials were the, the way they're located was the important thing. So I'm JP uh, as, um, if you like, the fifth generation of such who've been working in this industry. Oh, so there's a real family thing back through the names with the initials. Yeah, it the all names comes. Themselves. It all comes from my, actually my my uh, great great grandfather who was a, an Irish migrant and uh, he came across in 1840, set himself up, got some experience, and and ended up working for various uh, lords in their gardens, head gardener at various places, and uh, eventually set up his own business in North London. Uh, which then, of course, was a village, Tottenham uh, area, <laughs> uh, some tiny little village called Tottenham, and only actually moved north into Hertfordshire, which is where we're located, around the 1860s time because of the railway system, which was depositing soot everywhere. So the the greenhouse nurseries of the time were having a bit of a problem with being with all the dirt generated by the railway. So they kind of moved out. Fascinating. The product was then hauled into places like Covent Garden at the time. Well, we have one great horticulturalist as one of our guests and the other also, I'm sure if you cut her, it's Sap, uh, gardener through and through. Delighted to have you back on Talking Dirty. Barbara Jean. <laughs> I seem to remember if people haven't seen Barbara's two-parter episode um, and we'll link to it in the video version you should go back and watch because wonderful plants for show and tell I do feel like it always snows when you're on the podcast because I've currently got snow in my garden yep me too <laughs> <laughs> so if we book Barbara we bring the snow we'll try yeah. to not do that you know yeah. midsummer or something uh, for a real shocker and you're also a trustee of Perennials. So the two of you here to, I suppose, represent the charity. But Barbara, you also have known East Ruston as a garden for pretty much its entire history as an open garden. That's true, um, because I think I was there, Alan, on the, um, the I came with someone called Ethne Clark, who was a, a Norfolk. Yes, yeah, yeah. And um, I think there was there were tea and cakes in the in the, your dining room. And, you know, the garden was very small at the time, but you had a real sort of number of people who came that day. I don't know if they were all friends or if they were from garden groups, but it was wonderful. It sort of being, um, what's the word, on the map from then. And then yes, it just grew and grew and grew. <laughs> well, you know, Barbara, there's a certain sort of quattri of people that um, have this kind of contact um, and it's word of mouth and it goes from there to there to there to there and so forth and it spreads out like the ripples on a pond and um, I think it probably was the Norfolk Gardens Trust maybe. It um, may have been because I don't, yeah. I'm not sure you had then signed up with the National Garden Scheme. Or... No, I don't think we were. I think that was a very early opening for the Norfolk Gardens Trust. 
And there was someone there who had a ro- an amazing rose garden, um, I, it, also in Norfolk. Jerry Cargill. That's the person. Elsing yeah. Hall. Yes, that's right. So yeah. Mm. And uh, yeah, it was just magical. And she was the chairperson of Norfolk Gardens Trust. Well, that's that. Then we've nailed it. That, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is extraordinary to think about how the I mean, the garden has obviously physically grown. So much has changed in the world of horticulture. I mean, Alan, obviously you remember that first opening, but what an extraordinary distance you've come in those 50 years or whenever it was. I don't know how many years you were gardening before you opened. Oh, that wouldn't be that wouldn't be 50 years ago. That would probably be um, between 40 and 50 years ago because. um, Well, you had to get. Yeah, you only had a bare bare patch of earth to begin with. Well, as Barbara says, you know, the garden was very small. I'll give you a brief history if you like, and it is very brief. When we bought the house, it had been empty for three years. It stood in about two and a half acres of land, um, which we gardened at weekends because we lived in London in the week. Um, We then had the opportunity to buy another 19 acres, I think, no, 17 acres, taking us up to 19 and a bit. And it was, in actual fact, land to the east of us and land to the west of us um and thereafter we had another couple of bites at the cherry um and our last purchase shall i say was 12 acres i think because the farmer suddenly said to Graham, could we we approached the farmer could we have a little bit of extra land for overflow car park he said take the whole lot (laughs) (laughs) we have to pay for it of course but you know square square up your boundary make work make it sensible um, and it came at the time when, uh, you know, farmers were very reluctant to reluctant sell land years ago. And it came at the time when farming was um, becoming Europeanized, if you like, because this particular farmer who farms locally with us, he actually also farms in Hungary and Czech- Czechoslovakia. And so the whole thing is becoming much, much wider. Um, and so that's why we were, oh, that's how we were able to buy the land at vast expense, may I say, but we bought it. <laughs> Well, then you have the vast expense of turning it into a garden, because as anyone will know, I mean, the structure, I know you propagate so much, but there is so much hedging, paths, walls, trellis, ponds, you know, all of these different elements. None of them really come cheap, however hard you try to to be parsimonious. I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes they do actually become cheap because um, one of I mean, my on roots... the scale of cheap to expensive, they might not be at the cheapest end. But... <laughs> well, on my on my list of one of the things that we did, we planted lots of home oaks, and we took the cue from uh, Holcomb Hall in in North Norfolk, and they have an awful lot of home oaks growing there. Um, and again, the Norfolk Gardens Trust helped because the the president, I think, of the Norfolk Gardens Trust at the time was Lord Lester, Eddie Lester. And we used to meet him quite frequently because Graham, was, um, Graham went on to become chairman of the Norfolk Gardens Trust. Um, and I said to uh, Eddie Lester one day, could I possibly purloin some of your acorns? He said, help yourself, dear boy. So we went up and we went up with some sacks and we filled the sacks with acorns of the Quercus ilex, the evergreen oak. And they are, those sacks represent lots of our hedges and our outside shelter belts because they started life as an acorn. And, you know, a plant that, if you grow it from seed, quite often overtakes a plant that's been sown by seed in a pot and then transplanted and so on and so forth. Um, And I proved that by one of our hedges, which is um, made of home oak. And the whole hedge was, um, I think, every we go back to our old measurements in those days, every three foot, you planted a sapling and then an acorn, a sapling and then an acorn. 
within five years, the acorns had overtaken the growth of the saplings. Um, and the other thing that I found quite fascinating is that, as we all know, being horticulturalists, that every seed is genetically different from its parents. Um, and the variation in leaf size in particular amongst those um, Quercus ilex was quite fascinating. There's one with exceptionally large leaves. I would love to propagate it, because, but I've tried taking cuttings and it refuses to budge, but there you go. <laughs> so all those wonderful things that you learn from being able to garden in one spot for, for all that time. And it's why it's so mm. exciting that the garden can continue long, long into the future. And, and Paul, from Perennial's point of view, obviously there are already gardens, not millions of them, but a few key gardens around the country that Perennial already look after. That's correct. Yes, we have uh, we have four gardens, uh, well, three gardens at the moment, and and some we're talking to, um, but we've got three uh, particular ones: one one in Leeds, uh, uh, one uh, near Barrys and Edmonds at Fuller's Mill, uh, and one over in Herefordshire of Alaska. And these have been, you know, again, they're all, if you like, legacy gardens. You know, the way we approach uh, um, discussing with what we're going to do with such a gift is always to to bear in mind who gave it and, and what we're going to do with it subsequently. It will always be to follow the mindset of the original uh, uh, developer, owner, who has put it together. So it's really important from Perennial's point of view that that, is, that continued legacy is part of the whole deal. And Barbara, I mean, we've spoken to you about the importance of, of the people behind a garden. So mm. being able to have that legacy continued and obviously gardens evolve um, and, and I suppose it becomes more of an essence over time than necessarily the direct vision of the people who started it. But it's so important to have that story behind it. That's right. That's one of the things I love in my writing is meeting the people and hearing about their love for the garden and the way they've gardened. And that story, Alan, about the sowing, this, going and getting the sacks of acorns. And I mean, that's just such a great story and the view of the sort of long term aim. You know, you weren't going for ready fixes of sort of getting masses of trees, but just you know, those trees will grow over time. I love that, that, you know, if you're in one place, you can give it time. Which I tell you, Barbara, it's interesting what you're saying, because we did <laughs> treat ourselves to an extravagant present. We bought a pair. I bought one for Graham and Graham bought one for me. And they were London plane trees and they were in enormous pots that were imported from Italy. Um, and we planted them and we watched them get smaller and smaller <laughs> and smaller. <laughs> and it's a lesson you learn, you see, because here on the northeast coast of Norfolk, we have a very dry climate. We also learned that our water table was 19 feet below the surface. And if you have a big plant with a relatively small root system, because they, although they come in an enormous pot as big as, as, big as a dining table almost, um, you know, they, they, that root system can't take the water up fast enough before yeah. it's whipped up the leaves by the almost ever-present wind here. Yeah. Um, and then having a light soil, well, you learn your lesson. <laughs> That's an interesting point, though, because, Paul, obviously, when you take these gardens on and generally the, the original creator is there to, to 
do an extensive handover, you get all of these lessons. You don't have to figure out where the water table is and what plants like it and what plants don't, because no. as a charity, you're, you're given all of this, this wealth of information from people who know the garden inside out. Well, absolutely. Uh, and, and also, you know, generally, you know, you're keeping what staff you can who want to stay, like, so, so you're keeping the experience or, or a good body of experience with you. So, so you hope that doesn't go away. Um, it, it's really important, actually, that that continuity is is that and the handover is all part of this kind of system. So, yeah, I, I would say that uh, generally you do learn straight away. It's not learning on the job because you've already got that wealth of experience with you. Yeah. And and the mistakes, if you want to call it that. I've already been done, you know. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't do that. I've got experience. I know. Okay, we're not going to do that. <laughs> it's a wonderful thing that Perennial has gardens because, of course, Barbara, the other thing they do is is help people in the, the horticultural profession. That's right. I um, have not been in that position of asking for that help. And I suppose when I first got to know Perennial, it was more it was aimed more at um head gardeners of great properties and you know i remember the retirement homes that they used to go to and it's changed now it's become such a modern organization where um it's addressing really quite different needs to those that head gardeners and it's spread out to a wider um range of people in horticulture it's not simply head gardeners it's all sorts of areas of horticulture. In fact, you know, anyone who is involved can appeal to Perennial for help if they need it. And of course, one of the things that they do is they have got health checks. So people, you know, can, I mean, we all think of gardening as being very healthy organized, um, you know, profession, but there are times when you put your back out yeah. or you do something to your thumb or whatever, <laughs> and you, know, you may not be able to work at that time so perennial is able to advise and help at that particular juncture and so i think it's a really lovely thing that you can go and visit a garden and you know that what you're um, paying for the entry is obviously helping the garden to continue but it's also contributing to a wider aim which is fabulous it's quite interesting actually because that's that's one of the reasons we first started opening our garden to the public i think was um, on our first open day, there was um, our first sort of public open day. Um, I think we had 1,380 people turn up wow. and the car park overflowed and it was it was chaos, actually. Um, and, <laughs> I'm <not> surprised. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a bit like being a virgin. You have it once and once it's gone, it's gone forever. <laughs> <laughs> because... Because we had more than anything else the intrigue of what was happening behind these tall hedges and all the rest of it, and, and people would love to have a look. And it is the snoop factor. Well, yeah. particularly because as we established in the Tams and Westhorpe podcast, people thought it was a nudist colony. So obviously, yeah. loads of people <laughs> <laughs> wanted to see what was behind those hedges. Oh, I bet somebody, some people were disappointed <laughs> on that day. Yeah. <laughs> but. One of the reasons that we chose perennial, I'd just like to say, is because um, the way that they look after their gardens. I haven't been to visit the Lasket uh, yet, 
Um, but I have been to Fuller's Mill and I spoke to Annie Delbarge there, who is the head gardener, and of course to York Gate, and we, we knew Ben, Ben Preston quite well. And the wonderful uh, Jack Og, of course. Jack Og, of course. Yeah, I think he I think he's taken over. And I'm going again to to um to Leeds to look at um York Gate, I think the end of April. I think I'm talking up there somewhere or other. Um, and so I shall go the day before the talk and just have another look. But the the thing that I loved more than anything, probably, is the wonderful upkeep of those gardens. And we know how much of a struggle it is to keep gardens looking nice, um, and depending on weather, for instance. Um, but, I mean, you can weed a, a garden and it looks lovely for three days, and you have rain and sun and rain and sun, and then it's a sea of green again. <laughs> that's uh, that's putting it in a nutshell. But, no, I just, I just love the way that, um, I mean, basically... You have to say that those gardens had good have good bones anyway, um, and you know they were designed well in the beginning, um, and York Gate especially so I think, um, and the sense of architecture and surprise and, I mean a garden is not just about growing flowers it's about so much more it's about the atmosphere the way you feel the way you it I want a garden to wrap itself around you, mm. when I first went to York Gate it just wrapped itself around me and I just. I mean, we got there reasonably late and we walked up to the um, where you pay and this lady looked up and said, oh, it's East Ruston. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a welcome to start with, of course. But, you know, suddenly the garden just wrapped itself, wrapped itself around us and we just loved it. Yeah, not a big garden, but just so much to see. I could have spent so many more hours pouring over everything. I don't think, you see, you would know that that wasn't a big garden when you're there. No, no, it's just amazing. There is so every corner offers another opportunity, another piece or many pieces of inspiration. It is a fabulous place. Can I say, I also think that Perennial keeps the individuality, which Paul mentioned about of the different owners of the original creators, and I, I think that's a really important aspect. Well, I think you can see that, Barbara, in, if you if you compare Fuller's Mill with York Gate. Yes. Mm. You see, I mean, it is patently obvious. Yeah, that's right. And of course, East Ruston is a garden that is absolutely packed with the personality of its creators. And it's <laughs> it's exciting. I think for me, as someone who would count East Ruston as one of my absolute happiest places, I have had like, days when I when I lived and worked in Norfolk, you'd have like a really full on day and I would come to East Ruston and it would all sort of just float away and you would feel all the weights lift and you would come out of that garden feeling 100% better uh, even if you were exhausted somehow your energy levels would be topped up by a visit there and there must be I wish mine would <laughs> <laughs> there must be so many people who feel like that about the garden and of course the exciting the possibly for me selfishly the most exciting thing about news like this is that you will continue to plant the garden for the future it will continue to just have this pace of evolution that it, it always had absolutely i think you know that is the mission it is the mission you've got to keep it you've got to keep it on track with the original concept and uh, you know because you want the same people to come back and other people to come back and all get that experience that you've just explained so well uh, and get that out of it. It's really important that that, that continuity uh, exists, and 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 that's what perennial want to bring to the table, you know, because it it's part of delivering the message of perennial that that Barbara's so uh, eloquently described. You know, working for people in horticulture, 
you know, this is their, their help system, if you like, uh, for those who are less fortunate. And, and it's really important that, that these gardens help contribute to that message. And there are some really unique many really unique things about East Ruston. I mean, take the desert wash, Alan. It would be a huge loss to gardens in the UK if, if something like that wasn't preserved and couldn't evolve. Yes, I suppose it would. I mean, it's, it's uh, but that form of gardening is becoming popular. Yeah. Um, Yours are so established. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, that's true. I suppose it is. Um, and we have this rather exciting agave montana that's got a couple of flower spikes on it, which I hope will open this year, if only this blessed winter weather would go away. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I sort of look back and, and the cycles of our weather, and it seems to be that once every 10 to 12 years, we have these sort of kind of serious cold snaps. And mm. in between, we have benign winters. Well, whether that will continue or not, who knows? But I think the desert, in actual fact, uh, the desert wash, I mean, that is Graham's creation. I can't take any credit for it because that is his creation. And he has moved in excess of 450 tonnes of local flints and, and built built the um, raised beds there. When I say raised beds, it's not raised beds at all. It's a landscape. Um, and it, I think, coincided with global warming uh, quite well because the, the cl- we, we, did, we had less in the way of frost than we ever had. Um, but I don't know whether people generally know, are aware of this, but the Institute of Climatology at the University of East Anglia did a, a survey of the in the county of Norfolk, and well, East Anglia, really, um, and they found that the to, the to within three miles of the coast along the northeastern side of Norfolk, not north North Norfolk, North Norfolk, you can forget because that does get very cold, but the northeast and down the eastern side has the same mean amount of frost days as Devon, Cornwall, Southern Ireland, the west coast of Scotland. And so, you know, it doesn't feel like it when you're bending down in the teeth for gale in the December <laughs> January. But um, you have to take that into consideration. And, and again, you know, you learn because we would be here and in the winter and we drive inland the first thing in the morning and suddenly you get for four or five miles inland and there's frost on the verges and we hadn't gotten it home. Now, how does that happen? Well, it happens because of the, the uh, maritime influence of the... German Ocean, if you like, or the North Sea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it does make a difference. Provides you with this amazing, um, amazing planting opportunity, you know, and all the different pockets then of the garden. Because you've built all these walls, your walled garden, you've got all of these different places where you can then experiment with different plants, which is one of the reasons it's so exciting if you are obsessed with plants to walk around i mean i remember going to i mean when i was young i had the cheek of the devil i really did (laughs) i remember walking around walking around i don't know whether we were walking our dogs or what we were doing um and it's somewhere within a mile distance from this house and beneath a sheltered hedge on the south facing bank in the end at the end of march beginning of april there was a plant called dimorphotheca it's now known as osteospermum um, and there's this huge bank of these pale mauve white daisies with blue centres and full sun. And I just thought, what is this? I hadn't seen it before. So I went and knocked on the door and said, that plant you've got out there. And the, the, the reply, typical old Norfolk person, what you mean, that old daisy? <laughs> <laughs> so I said, yes. I said, you know, can I take a cutting? Well, yes, you can help yourself. Have as much as you like. You just put it in that root, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I did, and it did. Um, and, you know, it's it's things like that. You you sort of learn from what other people are growing, even if it is just that old daisy. <laughs> yeah. 
I do love those moments when people yeah. ask for a seed head or a cutting or I don't think I've really been brave enough, to be honest, but people sometimes ask it of me. The best you will be when you want it badly enough. <laughs> yes, yeah. That's true. The best thing is my Salvia Royal Bumble because it has all these babies. So if people say, oh, what is that? I love that. I go, hang on a minute. Let me go and offload one of my many babies to you that I don't have room for. <laughs> <laughs> which always makes me feel like considering all the wonderful plants I've been given from doing this podcast and being friends with Alan, it's my one way of trying to give back on that conveyor belt of plant giving is, uh, is my lovely salvia. Um, so Alan, as it, in terms of going forward with East Rustinal Vicarage for the time being, everything just continues as normal. Yes, it does. Yes, of course it does. And I mean, I think the other thing Paul mentioned to carry on with the spirit um, in which the garden has been planted. And I think that's important. But I think one has to face facts that um, the garden will change after we die. I have no doubt about that. Um, because, and it doesn't matter whether it goes to perennial or who it goes to or what it goes to. I, we um, are ensuring the, the, the best future that we can um, for the garden. But, you know, plants grow and they die and, and things happen and, and they, they get overgrown. I mean, I've learned that of course, one of the things that we did that everybody does when they start gardening is you plant plant you put plants too close together. Um, and I remember there was a, a classic case of a garden in West Norfolk um, belonging to the Alhusens, and they had to have um, I think I think in those days it was John somebody from Kew Gardens, I believe, um, who now lives in Norfolk. Sorry, John, John Simmons. John Simmons, thank you, Barbara. Yes, it was, and they wanted their arboretum to be um, thinned because it needed it. And he went and said, will you keep this one and take that one out, keep this and so on. And <laughs> the lady of the house was appalled because he, she said to me, he took out all the prettiest ones. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, when you have a you have a, a, a relationship with Hilliers, as they did, um, and, you know, anything new they had to have, and, and they just planted it, you know, I, I mean, the trees are quite wide apart, but even so, it's very difficult when you're planting a tree to imagine it um, 50 years from planting. It's a different beast altogether. Yeah. <laughs> Arboretums so often end up like that. It's almost, you know, they go into it, I suppose also because you never quite know which plants are going to really flourish. So you sort of... yeah. You have well, we've got the beginnings. We have the beginnings of an arboretum here. Um, it's where we have our plant fairs. And I think the... Um, the thing is there, we haven't planted them probably as far apart as they should be planted. Um, and the reason for that is because um, we can't water in that area. Well, I suppose we could do it, but I mean, it would become a very great chore. There's no water over there at all. And I did say earlier, you know, our 19 feet um, down is our water table. Um, and so you have to plant at the correct time. And here in East Anglia, that time is September because you need to get plants in the ground and get their roots moving before the end of the year. So while they've got warmth in the soil and there's enough moisture, if they start to get their roots out then, they are more likely to grow away in the, in the, the following spring. Um, and you know, if we have a period of drought, they've got to cope. And then, unless you do that, if you plant in spring, the poor things haven't got a chance. There's another little thing you learn, you know, you just, that's the way it is. That's the way it has to be. So in the meantime, while, you know, many, many more years of East Ruston evolving under the, the guardianship of Alan and Graham. And uh, and if people want to go and clap eyes on a perennial garden, uh, Paul, we've mentioned them. I mean, York Gate, the Lasket, is the Lasket open? 
The last kit is open, I think, just two days a week. I'm not entirely sure. As the newest acquisition, I and suppose. It is, the newest, it is the newest of the gardens, yes. And that is just, they're just sort of getting their heads round it, to be honest. Uh, um, but it, it it will be open more as, as things develop. Yeah. So it, it will gradually get itself together. So this is Roy Strong's gardens, Roy Strong. And... Um, you know, it will be an amazing facility. And they call it, it's way over on the west of the country. So, it, you know, the idea is to attract all the people in that area, people involved in horticulture in that area to, to sort of come, look, get involved, get the message and, and take it with, take it back home with them, you know. Uh, and, and, and the geographical locations of gardens is important. You know, they can't be on, all on top of each other. Yeah. They've got to be spread out. So that we've got a good sort of, if you like, a good spread of of areas where we can deliver um, messages really to yeah. to the public. And a bit uh, closer to um, you, a bit closer to you, Barbara. We have um, Fuller's Mill as well. That's right, uh, just up the road. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty <laughs> handy. I was there just a few weeks ago. They had one of their snowdrop openings, and uh, it you can see how hard the gardeners have worked over the winter it just was looking wonderful you know the bones were so visible and of course the snowdrops were lovely too um, <laughs> and beautiful you know new buds on things so so it was a, it was fabulous and it's not normally open at that time of year but because of the snowdrops snowdrop openings people can see it um, you just mentioned the bones of the bones of the garden, Barbara. I mean, that's so important, isn't it? Because I do hate the phrase um, that we get uh, in late autumn when I'm going to put the garden to bed for the winter. Yeah. Oh, absolutely loathe it because there is just so much interest in, in during the winter. And OK, January might be the dreariest month of the year, perhaps. But if you go and visit a garden with good bones, architecture, um, I mean, look at York Gate for the architecture in it. I mean, it is astonishing. Um, and I did steal an idea from York Gate, I have to say. Um, but it, it's, well, it, I didn't actually steal the whole idea. <laughs> you know, you know, the um, the clipped uh, blue cedar on the wall. Yeah, yeah. Looks like blue sausages on the wall. That's, that's just such an amazing piece of work. And I mean, you know, when you're putting something like that in, to have it in your head, what what you imagine it's going to yeah. be like in yeah. 10, 20, 30 years time. I mean, you know, it, it is it is wonderful. That is wonderful. You know, you're really doing it for the future. Yeah. And well, I've done the same thing with the weeping blue cedar, which I'm allowing to weep. I'm not clipping it. I'm allowing it to weep. So it looks like a blue waterfall on this wall. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but had I not been to York Gate and seen the way they've treated theirs, I wouldn't be doing it my way. And that's a great message that I think gardeners take from one garden to another. And going back to what um, you just said, um, Paul, about, you know, wanting gardens in different parts of the country. I think the other thing that um, Perennial does is it does such a great service to other gardens that are open in that in their area, because it gives, if if you like, a garden under the stewardship of perennial. I think you can the general public can assume that when they go to a garden that is um, overseen by the charity perennial, that the upkeep will be superb. Yes. Um, and it's not in every garden, as everybody knows. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, garden maintenance, it's an important element. And, you know, involved in that is the training of younger people. 
and and it's so important that that these people get trained and and in a sense move on you know because then they can take that skill set uh, and, and put it into another garden and so on and if they've worked for their if they've worked for perennial that is a a very great plus point on their cv absolutely yeah absolutely because you know i mean a the head gardener is going to be a person of significance let's, mm-hmm. let's put it that way uh, uh, and therefore the training that a young person will get out of this is up there you know yeah. it's, it's seriously good Mm-hmm. And and obviously the gardens, you know, the legacy gardens, if you like, are very important gardens. So there's a lot of good experience to be had mm-hmm. in, in that place. So so you know, I, I really see that as a you know a feeder for the industry, yeah. if you like, mm-hmm. and, and for people you know who want properly properly mm-hmm. trained. And I think the inspiration that youngsters have as well, because I know that at York Gate you now have a sand bed. Now, yeah. for people that don't don't know what a sand bed is, it's a way of growing, shall we say, slightly tender plants um, in colder areas. And you have about three foot, uh, a metre of sand, and then they go into soil, probably gravelly soil at that. Um, but it allows these plants to be as dry as possible at the root in the winter, which is our wettest period, let's face it. Um, and, you know, if they have a bit of top shelter, they're not going to need heat, but if they're a bit, a bit of top shelter, it allows for plants like agaves, dazzlerians, even various tender yuccas yep. to be grown in other areas. And I think that York Gate is, is very forward thinking on this. Um, I've heard great things about it. It's what I want to go and see as much as anything again. <laughs> well, uh, I, I mean, I'd be very interested to see. You You, you talked about weather events and, and um, in, in terms of, Every ten years, you get something that's hit you a bit harder than you would have liked it to. And I must admit uh, that the what we had in December caused some pretty serious devastation on our nursery. But um, I'd be very interested to see how these gardens have stood up to it. My own garden here in Hertfordshire has had a real spanking, and uh, um, I'm afraid we're going to have to rethink some of what we do. Or just accept that every ten years you're going to lose stuff. Mm. And, well, I, I, I uh, took, I took, I took something off a wall. It's a cleanthus, you know, the lobster claw. Yes. Unfortunately, it died in this in this very cold weather, and it had a perennial salvia with it as well. And we took them off, and Ian and I were taking them off the other day, and, and taking the detritus away and everything. And I said, "Look at this! It's a lovely little piece of west-facing wall. What an opportunity!" Uh-huh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Didn't, yeah, I didn't the loss at all. <laughs> And and the other interesting thing, I think, about perennials stewardship of the gardens is that um, there's a gardens committee that is formed for each garden that has, um, for example, um, Fuller's Mill um, had people on it who had known the garden as it was growing up. And the head gardener always prepares a, a wonderful report every quarter. And there's a walk around looking at what is succeeding and what is failing. And and it's not a sort of prescriptive thing, is it, Paul? It's just mm-hmm. a very interesting and interested bunch of people who um, want to see the garden succeed. And, you know, and the head gardener is always um, able to uh, explain why something is not happening or why something has already happened. Um, and I think it's a fascinating way of taking 
that mantle on further that the original gardener has um, started. Mm. I don't know, um, you know, if that sort of makes sense, but it's it just seems to me a, a nicer way than um, just having one person saying, well, we must do this or do that. There's this sort of interested group of people. Yeah. which Well, volunteers are similar sort of things, aren't they? We have a group of volunteers here in the garden. And um, from, for instance, this morning, it's a horrendous morning outside. We've had rain and heavy winds and all the rest of it. Um, and they are oiling all the wooden shafts on and handles on my tools this morning because, <laughs> as, you, as you probably know, we have a collection of old tools. Um, yes vintage garden tools and they need to be regularly oiled to keep them in good condition and so they're doing that this morning and they've they've had the luxury of being in my potting shed which i have to say rather selfishly is the only one with a fireplace (laughs) (laughs) the potting shed of dreams (laughs) alan i've just come back from the philadelphia flower show oh gosh organized by the pennsylvania horticultural society they had an exhibit there of old tools, quite a few of them European, and it was absolutely amazing. I, yeah. I did take some photographs. I will try and get them onto my computer in some way and send them to you. <laughs> I, I love old tools. These were really quite exciting and pretty extraordinary, some of them. I've never seen some of this stuff. I, I will send you. I will send you some shots so you can kind oh, of see. see them too. So this guy's uh, obviously an avid collector. I mean, he had a lot of stuff there. It was it was really interesting. Yeah, I'd like to know his name because there was yeah. several years ago there was an American man. He actually came here for lunch one day, um, but he used to buy up all the all the good tools. I mean, I'm talking about D-handle garden forks and spades and things like that, which you very rarely see nowadays. Um, and I said to Graham one day, you know, you realise that all of this is our garden heritage here in, in Great Britain yeah. and it's leaving our shores and going somewhere else. And that's what started us off, uh, us off on our journey. Um, yeah. It wasn't just going to America. It was going to Japan. They're going to Japan. And they were going to Germany as well and Europe in general. Um, but he came here for lunch and I said, what do you do with all these old tools? He said, they go in my museum. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was a guy with a museum. Maybe it is the same man. I don't know. But I, will, I can't remember I will his name out, man. I will find out and let you know. <laughs> Lovely. It, it, was a, it was really good to see it. Yeah. I mean, just how on earth would you have made stuff like that and thought it was a good idea? But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it worked at well, the time. And if you can't <laughs> head across the pond, you can always head to East Ruston Old Vicarage for a beautiful display go. of antique garden tools a little bit closer to home. Yeah. Thank you so much, everybody, for, for joining us today to be part of this exciting announcement. It's been a hard one to sit on, and I've not even known about it as long as Alan and Graham, so I don't know how you've managed to... <laughs> keep a hat on it but well done for for building it up big drum roll and uh and now we can all sort of rest easy about the future of one of our absolute favorite gardens well the, the funny thing is i did just mention on the radio i do a radio program every week and i did just mention on the radio there will be an announcement made about east ruston um early this uh this year so keep an eye out and and the amount of people what's what what's the announcement what's the, <laughs> <laughs> the building up the anticipation has really worked <laughs> 
<laughs> so so you, you're, you're generating stuff on the back of this, Alan. Well done. Alan, no stranger to building anticipation. No, no. <laughs> uh, Paul, Barbara, it's been an absolute joy. Thank you very much. Of course, if people want to go and find out more about Perennial on the website, there's all the information about the gardens, the work they do supporting service users and, uh, and how people can get involved and support what is such an excellent horticultural charity. Thank you. Thank you very much. Until next time, which might be a little while. This is probably our final podcast for a bit. We will <laughs> Maybe ask why. Why? Why could it possibly be? Um, <laughs> hopefully a baby will appear at some point. If not, I've just eaten a lot of pies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll, <laughs> we will reconvene uh, at some point in the near future. But thank you for, for watching. If you've missed any of them, they're all there on YouTube or in all the audio podcasty places to go back. Plant lists on the website, etc. So plenty of, of stuff. In fact, one of my things for maternity leave is to try and rewatch some of the podcasts because I've forgotten all of the wonderful plants and lessons that we've learned over the past few years. So hopefully um, that'll keep me busy if, if nothing else does. Until <laughs> next time, happy gardening, everybody. Happy gardening. <laughs> hey, Fordis here. Just to say thank you so much for listening to Talking Dirty. You are now officially our favourite person. If you really liked it, please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant-loving mayhem next week. And as you're our new favourite person... We don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening, and we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time.